0: Yeah, in fact, he's wearing a shirt that says there is no cloud. It's just someone else's computer. So make it yours. (laughs) This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. Engineers have watched over 2 million hours of Frontend Masters videos to upgrade their skills in the latest best practices in frontend development and Node.js. Popular video courses of theirs include courses on... Advanced JavaScript, Angular 2, React, API design with Node, and Functional and Asynchronous JavaScript. Many of their teachers have even been guests on JavaScript Jabber. Check them out at frontendmasters.com. Hey everybody, and welcome to the JavaScript Jabber
1: Show. This week on our panel we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 yo. This week I'm trying a new thing. I'm trying to somehow work in my company name into my introduction. So I'm AJ with DAPLY, taking back the internet from New York, New York.
0: Awesome, I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. I'm also in New York City. Uh, We're here for Microsoft
2: Connect and we have Sam Guckenheimer here with us. Hi guys, Um, uh, I'm uh, Sam Guckenheimer. I'm from Visual Studio Cloud Services. I'm delighted to be here. Connect's uh, pretty vibrant this year. Awesome. Um, so you work, you work specifically
0: with Visual Studio, now is that Visual Studio, Visual Studio Code, Visual Studio Team Services, Visual Studio, uh, the, the other three or four that were on the slide?
2: Uh, yeah, so for Mac or for uh, 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 mobile or, or uh, what have you. So sp- actually, uh, organizationally, I'm in Visual Studio Cloud Services. So, okay. so I work on uh, Team Services, Team Foundation Server, and so forth. Um, But uh, I also work very closely with the guys who do uh, Visual Studio, the IDE, um, VS Code, the uh, new mobile uh, uh, center on Azure. So those are all part of the the story.
0: Very cool. We actually had uh, Donovan Brown on the show, and uh, we we talked quite a bit about some of the offerings there, and that's really exciting stuff. Um, it seems like in the keynote they were trying to show us how all of the different pieces kind of line up together, mm-hmm. where at Ignite we talked mainly about Visual Studio Team Services, and then we talked a little bit about like Visual Studio Code and things like that. Now it, it, it looks like it's almost you right-click something or you pull a drop-down menu, and it just kind of sets off the whole chain through your whole DevOps setup.
2: That's correct, so what we're trying to do is to bring continuous integration, continuous delivery everywhere. Mm-hmm. And there is uh, underneath a common uh, build and release pipeline from right. that, that comes out of Team Services. If you're using Team Services itself, you see it obviously, but if you're using uh, the new flow f- that Donovan showed from Azure Web Apps, or if you're using it from uh, Visual Studio Mobile Center uh, on Azure, it's the same pipeline underneath. And the notion is that is that a modern organization is practicing DevOps, which means using an automated release pipeline, which means that uh, the guard against uh, things going wrong is automation in the pipeline. Okay. And the way in which you deploy is by uh, doing progressive exposure and the way in which you you understand what's happening is by means of monitoring and telemetry. And there is a, a common infrastructure underneath that which you get from any of these places. The UIs are dependent on whether you're starting from uh, mobile, you're starting from uh, the IDE, you're starting from the web in uh, team services.
0: Gotcha. I'm gonna let AJ ask a question.
2: Okay, so
1: I want to talk about Visual Code or Visual Studio on Mac a little bit. Yeah, because uh, that's that's new. Is this the same Visual Studio that runs on Windows, and it's
2: it's like we've completed the .NET port, or is it a different Visual Studio? What what, what is that? Well, the the origin of this goes back to our making um, .NET open source with so .NET Core, and then bringing in the xamarin platform which gave us the ability to really be cross-platform so the IDE now that's in preview with visual Studio on the Mac is a, is an outgrowth of uh, capabilities that were historically in xamarin um, it is not uh, there's a lot of commonality we didn't port everything from Windows to Mac
1: okay
0: Interesting, and and just to clarify, um, the reason we're asking about this is because they announced it brand new this morning, and you can go get the preview. Where do where do people go to get that? Can they just so you can go
2: to the download center Uh and uh, download Visual Studio for Mac. Um, If you just do a web search on it, I'm sure it'll take you right there. And there's a big green download button and. It's important You're that it's green. Running. That's very soothing. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the download buttons, I think, are, are that way now. Right. So
0: um, let's say that I'm a JavaScript developer, either just on the front end, or maybe I'm doing some Node.js as well. And I'm thinking, well, that sounds interesting. But isn't Visual Studio just for C Sharp?
2: Oh, not at all. So... Uh, yeah, I thought
0: I'd lean into that easy softball there for you. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's, uh, so Visual Studio is a great development environment for uh, Node or other JavaScript, and mm-hmm. typically applications have embedded JavaScript now. That right. is, it's, you know, you're mixing c with JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you're developing in Java, you're mixing Java and JavaScript. Uh, and uh, on the front end, and typically, you know, if you're using something like Node, you're of course using JavaScript on the server. Um, We now have uh, many options for that. So we have Visual Studio, we have Visual Studio Code. If you prefer uh, something that is more an editor with a command line, think of it Mm -hmm. as, you know, uh, if you were a developer who may have been using Sublime or Emacs or what have you, this is definitely something you want to try.
0: Yeah, we've had Chris Diaz on the show to talk about
2: it. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that it's amazing how... um, How many times I hear people say, thank you for giving me a real editor that I can use for JavaScript going to, who've gone to VS Code from uh, something that was uh, uh, less capable. And we have Visual Studio for Mac and and, uh, Visual Studio, which will do things like forms and uh, more guided, opinionated experiences. Okay. So effectively you can think of those as the opinionated IDE's and uh, Visual Studio Code as the, you know, editor that you bring your intent to and gives you command line and um, uh, lets you be very productive if you're a, you know, you come out of that world. It's, it's right. only two generations of of ways of working.
0: Right. So you go, you download Visual Studio for Mac, you start hacking on some JavaScript, you realize it's a really awesome experience for programmers, and then um, the thing that really impressed me is that a lot of developers that I know, they're good right up to the point where oh, now I have to go deploy this thing, right? And so it's either um, I've gotta go set up the server and install Node.js and I have to make sure all the packages are up to date on Ubuntu or whatever I'm using and on and on and on and on and on, um, you know, or they run into issues where it works on my machine but for some reason I can't get it to play nice on the server and it seemed like there were a whole suite of tools there that they showed off that help get you then to that point where what I have working on my machine works up in the cloud. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, totally. The um, so so one of the things that we showed was um, a big improvement in container support, both uh, in the IDEs and in the cloud. And
0: I'm just going to put a side note in for our listeners. Um, I know our more experienced people will know this, but our less experienced people might not know. Containers are usually something um, that you would associate with Docker or similar tools. Yeah,
2: so we are using Docker, okay? Docker is the is the management platform for containers. These are Docker containers on Linux or Windows. Uh, in Azure, there is an Azure Container Service, and uh, registry, which gives you a place to have, you know, trusted container images. The um, If you're not familiar with containers, you can think of these as the successor to VMs. So virtual machines made it possible to have a handful of um, virtual machines on one piece of iron, on one right. server. And containers now give you the next layer where you can have many, many, many of those inside a VM. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, then you can, and you can choose the level of isolation you'd like. The reason containers are so cool for DevOps is that they're very fast, uh, they're fast to, to instantiate, they're fast to move, they're uh, lightweight, you describe them in a Docker file, mm-hmm. and they, um, uh, and you can get this high density so you can scale out in a big way Using containers and the and they're immutable, so in the past, you always had the um, the issue of uh, environment drift. You know it works on my machine, but we don't get to ship your machine mm-hmm. right we're It's got to work over there on that production server. Right. The idea of a container is that the container you are working in as a developer is the container that moves into test is the container that moves to pre-prod and to prod, mm-hmm. the or the, the orchestration of many containers that you're working in is what moves, and it's the same environment. The only things you do differently are bind new secrets as you move forward, but right. this immutability of containers gives you a great way of getting out of that worry of environment drift. Mm-hmm. And it gives you a great way of working fast. So that's why they've, they've you know, certainly taken off. Now, uh, in the past, it used to be that you needed to know an awful lot of settings to get this pipeline to work. Right. And what we showed is that you can have the pipeline instantiated for you out of v- Visual Studio or out of Azure Web Services mm-hmm. and it will just be ready. And it's the same pipeline you would have in the past uh, specifically created all the, the settings for by hand uh, in Team Services. Now it's just there. It's ready in Team Services. You can run your automation through it. You can deploy as often as you want.
0: Yeah, that's that's the thing that I'd seen. So I've set up continuous integration by hand and here are all the variables that you need and here's how you build the app and here's how you you know basically get it deploy ready so that you can actually spin it up and run all the tests and on and on and on and you know and then it's the same thing in production it goes through the essentially the same process and like you said then you have different secrets for each level because it it has to know where the production database is not the development database and yeah just the idea of being able to in my IDE say okay um, I'm working with Docker, so I've got this box of stuff and I'm gonna essentially send that same box of stuff up to the CI machine. The CI machine doesn't have to do the build process, doesn't have to fight any of that stuff. It plugs the secrets in, spins up an instance, runs my test, and then does the same thing in production.
2: Exactly, and the... the
0: uh... And it was as, as simple as, oh, it works on my machine, you know, all the tests passed here, so I click a button and it goes.
2: Yeah, you really can, can set it up in, you know, a few minutes. I think Donovan did it in two. It would probably take me five. I think you <laughs> <So>. practiced. <laughs> well, so,
1: yeah, with Donovan's demo there, uh, I remember I didn't see him do anything that looked Dockery other than that he created a file named Dockerfile, and then I, that was the one where it suggested the extension. For the for the Docker plugin or something? No, that was the VS Code one.
0: VS Code had the extension for Docker. Okay,
1: but anyway, he did he did something. He used his right click instincts, and then that was so funny. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and then uh, he's got the Docker running on localhost. He edits the file, hits save, refreshes, and the Docker image has already been updated on localhost. So how is that process happening on, um, like, on my Mac? How is it happening? Is, is the Docker stuff just built into Visual
2: Studio like by default, or is there some setup there? So today it's in preview on uh, Visual Studio. Um, I, uh, we, the right-click thing he did, we don't have on Visual Studio for the Mac yet, Okay, but will. The, um, well, that's important because that's instinctive, and people are going to go for that. I understand, although you don't right-click <laughs> on the Mac so much. Yeah. Well, the other issue is
0: is that Docker has historically been a little bit weird on the Mac. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it works fine on Linux because it's essentially a wrapper around um, the Linux kernel and the way that it manages containers, which is also why it's fast and scales nicely. Um, I have no idea how it works on Windows. But on the Mac, I've done some funky virtual machines set up in order to get it to work in the past.
2: Yeah, so the, um, uh, that's true on Windows. It, so with Windows Server 2016, we have been through many of uh, the uh, uh, technical previews on and this, you know, supporting Docker First Class and made a decision some time back that Docker would just be the management layer for containers so that they would, mm-hmm. you know, that you'd use them the same regardless of whether you're targeting Linux or targeting Windows. The um, the thing here that we're doing is we're making it so that you don't have to become uh, a specialist in Docker uh, to use dockerized containers in the pipeline, mm-hmm. and you don't have to become a specialist in setting up the pipeline with all the right bindings to set that up, it just instantiates for you, and as Donovan said, you know all his right-click memory muscle. Right. Uh, in that, you know right-click finger, just worked. Um, the uh, uh, and uh, of course, if you do want to use all the Docker command lines, they're there in Visual Studio Code, and you know with IntelliSense, the way Chris showed them, and it just works. And you know, um, one of the 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 big things that people, of course, are doing with with containers, Docker containers, is you know setting up Mm Node.js as a way of getting to microservices, where you have Node running something that is uh, an individual service, right, and then. The next one is separate, and the next one is separate, and the next one is separate. And in fact, by containerizing those services, you can not only go to node, but it doesn't really matter. Doesn't matter what they're running, yeah, because they're all independent. They all communicate through REST and and uh, Mm -hmm. web APIs.
0: Right. This is where I send subliminal messages about how much I love Ruby.
2: You can use Ruby.
0: Yep. So uh, by all means. Yeah, that was the other thing I was really impressed with is. I've worked on systems that essentially were split into separate services. Um, I don't know that some of the services were small enough to necessarily be considered microservices, but they were separated and used some form of queuing or web APIs in order to communicate. Um, And yeah, the full app deployment, like if if we had made semi-major changes in more than one or two of the services and the main app, deployment was like this scary freak show. And the fact that Uh, the Visual Studio tools actually make that easier, too, where it's, hey, all these containers are playing nicely on my machine, and again, they can all ship as a group. That was very, very encouraging to see something like that made so simple.
2: It is, it is, and you can use, uh, so typically people do use groups of containers and they use orchestration layers, Mm -hmm. and Azure with a container service supports DCOS from Mesosphere or Kubernetes or Docker Swarm, Uh, they're all there and the um, pipeline is created for you with with team services and you uh, have that, that both the flexibility and the ease. Um, One of the things about uh, services and, and microservices is you know a very common pattern is that people will go to containers as an intermediate step. So they'll say, what we want to do is to containerize what we've got today and uh, run it in our data center and try it before we refactor and then gradually start refactoring and carving it from the monolith it is today into a more microservices architecture or the new things we write will then be in separate containers. And a lot of the appeal of Docker is the ability to do that, to to take existing software assets, run them in this uh, self-contained container, evolve around the side and have deployment freedom.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So you can deploy on Windows or Linux, you can deploy on-prem or in the cloud, you can um, uh, independently maintain the containers. Uh, you can really treat the containers as, as cattle, not pets. Uh, <laughs> you know, if, if you need another one, you get another one. If you need, if one's not, not well behaved, you can kill it and others come up, it's just great.
1: Interesting phrasing, like cattle, not pets. <laughs>
2: So you you haven't heard that one before that's a that's a common devops. It's a term. yeah,
1: I was going to say
0: it's a devops term. <clears throat> the
2: uh the idea
0: it came out of VMs more in, Yeah, it started
2: in, with VMs. It started with VMs. But as as um as my friend Jason Cox from Disney says, you know, they used to name their servers and they took on personalities like Sleepy, Dopey, Goofy. <laughs> and um when you uh instead just say, you know, server one or container one, container two, container three, you don't assume personality. You want them to behave identically. And it's just another instance of the same thing. So rather than having these snowflakes that are each unique and therefore hard to maintain and therefore no one knows how to troubleshoot and therefore you get environment drift and therefore it works on your machine but not in prod and so forth, you just create everything fresh. And that was initially the uh, promise of infrastructure as code. It's now gone a step further with the idea of immutability and, and containers as the immutable way to move through deployment.
1: I'm sure that the singularity is crying tears when it he hears
2: that. <laughs> 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 They're just numbers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, so, I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> but that's the idea. The idea is right. that you, know, you want to be able to spin these up by hundreds or thousands, and uh, not have any quirks that are uh, unique and therefore make, you know, make it hard to, tr- to troubleshoot. Let's pause for a moment to talk about our sponsor, Taurus.
0: Taurus is a new tool for managing and securing the secret information that allows your app to run. You know the stuff. Passwords, API keys, database credentials, all the stuff that gives access to the private stuff that you don't want anybody to touch except for your application in specific ways. Taurus provides a convenient way to store all this information in the cloud, and they can't access it because it's encrypted with material derived from your password, which is never transmitted to their server. So it's secured from them from everybody else but accessible to you. This means only the servers, development machines, and applications you've allowed can access the information. So make secrets management headaches a thing of the past and check out Taurus today. You can find them at devchat.tv slash Taurus. That's devchat.tv slash T-O-R-U-S. Well, then the idea of immutability is something that we've been exploring in the programming space for quite some time. Right where you know basically we add immutability and functional programming to a set of code. And then, yeah, essentially if you have to make a change, then you, you kill it and replace it with something that has that state change in it or the behavior, behavior changes in it. And uh, the power that that gives you is that you can make a whole set of assumptions then based on the state of whatever it is that you're working on and it allows you also to move forward or move back depending on how you manage that state. And it's kind of the same thing with these containers because if you know which deployed version you have and you can replicate the state of the um, environment variables that you're using to configure it and the state of any data s- sources that they're pulling from, you can assume a level of consistency that you can't assume otherwise. Exactly. And, and, and that's the real power, I think, in... Being able to deploy with containers. Um, I'm I'm curious, just uh, rolling back the conversation a little bit here. um, Some organizations just really hate change. (laughs) And so I can see some of them going, okay, well, you know, I keep hearing about containers, but that's change is scary. Or um, we all use Emacs and we all kind of get it. And so, you know, I see some of the power tools that come in Visual Studio, but it's kind of scary making that change. I mean, how do you advise organizations to look at the capabilities and make a determination as to whether or not it's worth the trouble of the change?
2: I talk to customers about change all the time. It's um, maybe something that that I do a few times a week typically uh, when they come in and I uh, usually Take the approach of talking about how we have changed and what we do. Um, I think we. Uh, so I, I. It. I don't think it is technology led. Right. I think that the the uh, strongest argument uh, to make about the DevOps model is that you have. Uh, as a, as a business and as a software organization, whenever you are uh, deploying something uh, however you have built it, whether you've started with requirements, you've started with user stories, you've started with hypotheses, you've started with whatever, you find that your beliefs about what would happen, are right and substantiated in production maybe a third of the time. They're diminished by the evidence from production a third of the time. So stuff you thought would be great Mm -hmm. turns out to not be great. And about a third of the time, what you've done hasn't made any difference. Mm -hmm. So if you you think that that is true, and we have good evidence that that is true for us, Mm -hmm. then What you wanna do is to fail fast on the two thirds that aren't helping and double down on the one third that are. Okay, so that means that your goal is to deploy more frequently because the rate of deployment.
0: Because you get better, more measurements that way.
2: You get more measurements and more opportunity to react on the feedback from the measurements. Okay, so the, the rate of experimentation is a function of the rate of deployment. Okay, so you want to optimize for speed, okay? And by optimizing for speed, you get more opportunities to fail fast and to double down. And by optimizing for speed, you get the benefits of better software for customers and you get enormous cost savings, it turns out, and you get better security. And there's a a market difference between the high performers there and the average or low performers in terms of what they achieve as business results. Now, that transformation has to be motivated by that desire for improvement. Then the question becomes, OK, so how do we do that? How do we get faster? How do we get better at deployment? How do we uh, get our teams thinking this way? And you you end up with a, a set of practices that, have fallen under the DevOps umbrella around the automation of the pipeline, the um, uh, management of teams, the lean and agile practices, um, the management of technical debt, the um, uh, live side culture for uh, managing what is actually deployed in production and, and treating it from a perspective, if you build it, you run it. So you, you know, you you get you disintermediate the development or DevOps team, and you say the folks who build this need to take responsibility for running it, and you tune all the systems to make that better. Mm-hmm. So you collect better telemetry, you collect more data from production, you collect uh, more insight into usage, you, and all of this goes back to how you think about your backlog and your hypotheses. And you do this fast feedback loop and you get better at it and better at it and more data informed. So the transformation comes from the desire to work like that. And people get nowadays that that's how the services they're using and the apps they're using as consumers are being done. Right. And they want to get their businesses that way. So this move to DevOps is being motivated there. You know, it's. Um, uh, I was talking with one of the Gartner analysts and said uh, that their data shows that, I think it's something like 17% of enterprises have fully gone for DevOps and the next 17% are uh have introduced it in some areas, mm-hmm. so we're you know we're clearly seeing an early majority right. movement. Uh, there have been certain technical stumbling blocks. I think we're making the the technology much easier to adopt. And uh, today we introduced the mobile center, the Visual Studio mobile center on on uh, Azure, which lets you tie in mobile DevOps to that process so you can manage the uh, uh, the multi-channel heads the same way you do the server side and with you know similar quality of telemetry and similar quality of feedback and similar quality of analytics and you can automate the testing across form factors as part of the release pipeline so all of those things all of those things are combining to make it practical.
0: Yep. it's funny that you bring that up because we're here with the mobile podcast on the network, but we're a JavaScript mm-hmm. show, and the thing that I think is so interesting is you bring up the mobile center, and I was like, oh, this is the JavaScript show, and then it occurred to me that about half of the JavaScript developers I talked to have at least tried or played with or have built apps with JavaScript on the mobile, and your mobile center works with React Native or NativeScript or Cordova or whatever else, as well as with Xamarin and Swift and Objective C and Java.
2: Exactly. One of the things, you know, we, we have this saying any app, any developer, any platform. Mm-hmm. And the any's are um, things we take to heart. So everything we do, we build for extensibility and API first. And we don't assume that you're swallowing the elephant whole. Mm -hmm. We assume that you're um, taking it in slices and that uh, you're going, if you are an organization with existing software and existing practices, you're gonna move stepwise to improve and you're gonna measure the benefit of those steps as you go, so we don't say throw everything out. Uh, Just like we, you know, say don't throw out your Java, don't throw out your Linux, what have you. You can work with that. JavaScript um, is uh, heavily used. React is uh, really important for going to a class of apps for these things. And if you want certain apps to be native, we have Xamarin. Mm -hmm. Uh, so So... But both are real, and and we don't block you because of the technology choice from having a suitable pipeline, which automates your testing, automates your telemetry, automates your feedback.
1: So you keep on saying the word telemetry. I don't know if that's well-defined for our
2: listeners. Will you explain that a little bit? Sure. So by telemetry, I mean the instrumentation that collects data from production, and uh, gives you things like insights about production performance about server logs about crashes about um, uh, command patterns everything about visibility into what's running in production I mean the the analogy of telemetry initially came up from the notion that you uh, you had a view on um, uh, harder machinery but um, in software the idea is that everything you deploy be it server side or uh, uh, device side you want to have visibility into both for uh, understanding usage and for troubleshooting because your goal is to minimize your time to detect your time to mitigate, and your time to remediate. And to do that, you need to see what's going on.
1: So you're also talking about data that's coming from Android devices, iPhone devices, browsers?
2: Yes. Yeah, so uh, we have, for Android, iOS, um, and so forth, we've had a Hockey App, and that's now part of the data you get in, in uh, the Visual Studio Mobile. The uh, uh, So that will give you you know, direct crash dumps, it'll give you logs, it'll give you usage patterns. For server side or service side, we have application insights um, and uh, application insights analytics. We use this, for example, ourselves. Across Azure services, we're collecting right now about 1.6 petabytes of data a day using telemetry. Oh, is that all? Yeah, Uh, so the, um uh yeah, so I mean it's you know and it it, it grows every month by a lot. So you know uh, we, we don't keep it forever, but if someone needs to troubleshoot an instance of a customer account with anything, that data is all available to them. So, you know, in in 10 years ago or, or more, you would have had this argument about can the developer get access to the production box? Now it's not a question because instead of needing to get access to the production box, all the production data is brought to the developer and you can keep the production environment secure.
0: I, I had that fight less than 10 years ago. Well, there you go. Yeah. And, and I think depending on where you're working and who you're working with, that's still a concern, but it's nice to see it move the other way because it makes it much much easier for all of the things that have to work together to work together.
2: Yeah, and I mean one of the one of the things that that is also a very big concern right now is um, uh, everywhere you go is security, um, and the you know uh, uh, ever since the Target CEO got fired five years ago, and then Sony got breached, and then the US government personnel office got breached and everyone with a security clearance discovered their social security number and their their kids' bios were in China. Uh, People have been much more conscious about how does, how do we make things more secure? And it turns out that by going faster with DevOps, you get more secure because you don't give bad actors places to hide and that uh, by doing things like not giving people rights to production using just-in-time administration or uh, PowerShell's, j- I'm sorry, just-enough administration, you don't have credentials that can be compromised that give access to the production network. So part of that is saying, well, we're going to keep our production network secure, but we need that data to come back, So use telemetry for that.
0: Yep. Now, we're, we're running a little bit short on time. Do you have any other questions you wanted to ask, AJ?
1: Mm, well, there's one thing, might be a little off topic, but I remember seeing a demo today where there was uh, basically a instinctive right-click to open up what basically looked like Chrome Web Developer Tools, but it was for some XML stuff in, in Xamarin, I think. Uh,
2: that could have been. Uh, so, we have web developer tools uh, both on the Mac and on. It wasn't
1: web developer it? tools, though. It was like looking at Xamarin code. Oh, the it, XAML? The yeah, but it oh, was yes. like. It was yeah. like yeah. So That's log, correct. So, it looked like it was HTML, except it obviously wasn't. And it was like live oh. updating. I yeah. mean, right. it, 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 looked lo- like, it looked like as simple as a web experience, but it was, it was for something mobile.
2: That's correct. It was for Xamarin Forms that uh, give you the native UI on Android and iOS. And so, is
1: that also on Mac, the, in Visual yes, Studio yes, for Mac? Yes, absolutely.
2: Okay. absolutely. So you can do that f- from either platform. If you're using Visual Studio for Mac, you've got that. If you're using um, the Xamarin Mobile tools inside Visual Studio on uh, uh, Windows laptop, you've got that too. So yeah, totally. OK, Very Yeah, cool. I was just curious about what that
1: was. Yeah. Yeah, right. it's
2: it's uh, yeah. So you've got you've got that kind of free flow thing, but also for native now.
0: Nice. Let's take a break from this episode and really quickly talk about finding a job. You know, searching for a job can feel stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole, never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through an interview process just to find out that the very end that the salary offer or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for? Well, there's a solution. Hired.com is the world's most intelligent talent-matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities. They make the job search faster, focused, and stress-free instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best. Hired puts you in control of how and when you connect with compelling opportunities. And after completing one simple application, top employers apply to you. And the best part is, is that you get money. That's right. They pay you if you get a job through them. Listeners to this show can earn double their normal hiring bonus by signing up with the show's link. That's right. You get $2,000 instead of $1,000. So go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. Well, one thing we do at the end of the shows, I'm, I'm going to start wrapping up here because I don't know if somebody else needs this room at three. Um, one thing that we do at the end of the shows is we do things called picks. And it can be a tool, it can be a technology, it can be a TV show, or music, or just anything you feel like kind of made your life better in the recent past. Um, I'm going to have AJ and I go first to kind of give you an idea of how we do this, and then you can go ahead and
1: shout out about whatever you want. So, AJ, do you have some picks for us? Uh, So, I'm going to do self-picks. Go for it. Because, yeah, so... uh, our company, DAPLY, uh, things have been going well. We're on WeFunder with CrowdEquity. So if you believe in our mission of, of taking back the internet and you'd like to actually become part of the company, um, we're on wefunder.com slash DAPLY, which is D-A-P-L-I-E. And for as little as $100, you can actually become part owner and contribute to that, that vision of the future. And we also have a, a campaign that's probably still going on Indiegogo by the time this airs, um, where you can pre-order our, our product. Uh, cloud, which is the the in-home cloud that you get to keep privately um, where the te- telemetry stays with you. <laughs> yeah, in fact, he's wearing a shirt that says, there is no cloud, it's
0: just someone else's computer. So make it yours. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right, I've, I've got a real quick pick. Um, this is something that my uh, I just hired a business coach to help me uh, figure out how to take devchat.tv to the next level. And she pointed me to a service called unroll.me and what you do is you go in, you put in your email address, and if you're on Google, so I'm on Google Apps, which I think now they're calling like G Suite or something like that, but if you're also in Gmail and a few other of the more common email providers, you go in, you put your email address in, it asks for permissions to look at your email, and then it gives you a list of all of the subscriptions that you have for all of the things that email you all the time in your inbox, and then you can go in and you can say, either um, put this into a role for me, and so then it just emails you, I think digests of all that stuff, but it also gives you an unsubscribe. And so I went through and I think I've unsubscribed from 400 odd email subscriptions that somehow wound up. So, one, and, and I think some of them come because I'm on the CES press list. And so they give your email address to all of the vendors And then all of the vendors add you to MailChimp. So yeah, so um, I have to run that periodically. I'm probably going to have a heck of a time in March because CES is in January. But uh, yeah, it's terrific. So if you've got way more email coming in, I also use SaneBox and that puts it into its own folder. But uh, unroll.me was real nice because I was able to unsubscribe from a bunch of stuff. The only issue I had with it was that the email service that I use called Drip if somebody replies to one of the emails that I send out, um, that has their unsubscribe link in it. And so I can't click unsubscribe for those emails or I'll wind up unsubscribing my subscribers. And those are my those are the people I love because they're actually emailing me back. So I had to be a little bit careful with that, but you're probably not in that situation. So if you find you're getting a lot of newsletters and some from folks you don't want to get them from, uh, try unroll.me and get rid of them.
2: I am in that situation, so that's a great tip. Yeah. What's been saving me recently <laughs> is the focused inbox on um, uh, Outlook now, which um, filters all the you know subscription stuff off uh-huh. into another. Yeah. This looks and, important.
0: Look at this. Is that kind
2: of what yeah, it does? So, so yeah. So it, it leaves the things that are really to me mm-hmm. in the focused. Uh, set and then in the other set it has all of the you know newsletters and spams and what have you gotcha. and it's a it's a read it later thing um, Got it. so that uh, so I'd call that out uh, in terms of tools something that I'd call out as a partner uh, we have now in the marketplace called white source very relevant for the javascript discussion uh, because They help you set up a rugged CI pipeline by scanning the components you're consuming and reusing. Okay. And and it's the, it is fast enough uh, that it doesn't interfere with your CI, and it's accurate enough that you get great information on vulnerabilities you're reusing and didn't know about, and they notify you whenever something new is discovered. So that's a, that's a great new marketplace partner.
0: Nice, now I'm gonna ask one more question and that's because AJ asked Andrew and I last night and that is have you seen any good movies lately?
2: I've seen any good movies lately? Um, well, I saw the, uh, uh, I, was, I was intrigued by Girl on the Train. Um, I thought the, um, uh, I hadn't read the book. Uh, my wife had, and um, so I think she enjoyed the movie less than I did. (laughs) (laughs) But I couldn't figure out what was going on, and I thought it was an incredible portrayal. Um, I uh, uh, was, you know, really kind of sucked in by the plot on that one. Um, I've been... um, Reading John Le Carre's, uh *Pigeon Tunnel*, which which is his memoir, and there's a f- wonderful chapter in there about the best. His best movies were the ones that never got made. Uh huh. And he goes through all these sequences he had with different directors who said, "Let's," Sidney <laughs> Pollack, you know, Kubrick, uh-huh. and said, "Let's make a movie about this book," and then it doesn't happen.
0: Right. <laughs> Makes sense yeah both uh the success and the failure and the execution aren't they
2: yeah and it's uh it's it is a great set of stories about not failing fast mm-hmm. yep and getting suckered awesome all right, well we'll go ahead and uh, wrap the show up, but before we do, um,
0: if people want to follow you on Twitter or see what you're working on or if you have a blog or anything sure. like that. How, how do they find you? So
2: I'm at Sam Guckenheimer, S A M G U C K E N H E I M E R. And I blog uh, or post stuff at aka.ms slash DevOps. Okay. Uh, you can also look up DevOps at Microsoft.
0: Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. This was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, hopefully we bent your brain in a new way and
1: you enjoyed the show. Thanks a lot. So since no one's knocking at the door, I do have another question that I'd like to ask about. Um, so the the story for deploying to Azure sounds like super smooth and way awesome, and I love the demos today. But as we are talking about Docker, I started thinking, like, if I wanted to do a deployment, like hook in a deployment to, say, uh, a server in my house, like a Raspberry Pi, mm-hmm. is that... Uh, something that I could like change the URL from an Azure API to some other API, or how does that deployment work? Is that yeah? A you basically plugin change or?
2: the endpoint. Okay. So the so everything that uh, you saw goes into w- what is called a build or release definition in Team Services. Uh huh. Okay, and that is a set of tasks. And those tasks have parameters like the endpoint to which you're deploying, and you just change those, and that that gives you that it, targeting independence, so you can choose where you want to go. So if
1: I'm if I'm like on an intranet, not connected to the internet, yeah. and I want to deploy from my Mac to uh, some box that's sitting next to me, I can. I can run some software on that box that enables it to receive a Docker container.
2: Yeah, so if you're running not on the internet, uh, you would, uh, in our world, be using Team Foundation Server, which has the, so, so Donovan was demoing off of the SAS version, mm-hmm. Visual Studio Team Services. Right. Uh, we uh, update that all the time, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a, there's a features timeline page that shows you all of that. And then we update the on-prem TFS that you can install roughly quarterly with, with the same capabilities. So today, what he showed is on Team Services. It'll be on TFS shortly.
0: So one, one thing that I'm wondering about, though, is um, it seems like if, let's say that I have containers that, again, you know, we're, we're in the IoT space, So uh, people have these uh, machines Mm -hmm. behind their router so they're not directly sitting on the internet where I can go poke it with SSH and Mm -hmm. say, here's your thing. So um, if I want to update those machines behind what is essentially a firewall or a NAT or something and uh, I'm updating the containers from my machine so I just push that up to team services you know that, That's all fine, runs through continuous uh, integration. It's set up for continuous deployment, but yeah, I can't reach through somebody's router and say, here it is. Is there a way for it to pull those or to check periodically and get those updates? Or how, how would you manage something like that?
2: Well, the, so this is a, uh, the pattern varies depending on how you're doing IoT. If you do not have IP connectivity, to a device, you obviously can't right. deploy to that device. Right, you can't but you, push to it. But you can have an agent on it that pulls okay. from a location, mm-hmm. and um, th- uh, that is a frequent pattern where you would uh, you would stage something uh, at the edge of that device ring, and you would then have, them pull that update from there. Gotcha. Um, uh, you also have the pattern often where you um, have secure systems which have a defined maintenance window. So that's, uh-huh. so they will pull when they are allowed to connect externally. Right. And they need a you know secure routing, and it's only at a certain time. Mm-hmm security systems, factory automation, what have you. You Cars, right. you don't want updating while they're driving, typically.
1: <laughs> I don't want my car updating at all. Please just Although, take the computer out of my car. I, I, If I have to remove fuel injection and go back to a carburetor, just get the
2: computer out of it. <laughs> Although there was a fantastic <laughs> demo at DockerCon this year, uh, where, so the closing demo ha- did, and... Had a flying drone mm-hmm. on the stage, and the drone software is running in Docker containers, and they did a blue-green deployment to what the flying drone. So, you have uh, green deployment is what's running, uh-huh. and then you deploy the blue version, and then you shift control over to the blue version. Oh, okay. So they were deploying in flight, and switching control on the flying drone. That's it was, cool. It was very impressive. That's cool. Um, had <laughs> a little daring maybe if you had a live audience? It was in front of a live audience and it, you know it was a little daring but it certainly demonstrated uh-huh. the like idea the of microservices there, yeah. in containers as a realistic thing and being able to flip control during flight was pretty dramatic.
1: Well, I think that, like conceptually, uh, for example, haproxy, you can do that that yeah. sort of thing. And
2: uh, I mean, this is it's like a VIP swap, yeah, yeah. Um, and but contain and containers are light lightweight enough that you know you're not groaning under the you know the load of how much data are you moving, how long does it take, etc. That's the that's the beauty. Yeah, Donovan
1: was saying, or no, it wasn't
2: Donovan, it was the, uh, I don't
1: remember who it was, but the, the one container was like 50 megs.
2: Yeah. Um, and they're often lighter weight.
0: Yeah, because uh, at least on Linux, they share the kernel, and so it doesn't have to contain the entire operating system, it just has to
1: contain what it needs to know in order to do its job. So it's like an, another
2: init process and another bash process. Yeah, and another... and
1: then, Yeah, and it's sandboxed and...
2: Same thing on Windows. So Windows gives you two levels uh-huh. as a choice, but typically you know, everything's shared from the OS layer up. But you can have also a, uh, an untrusted container. Uh-huh. So if you're, for example, running third-party software that you don't know anything about, you can put it in an untrusted container. It's a little bigger, right? more secure.
0: Yeah, and so it still has the low-level access, but it doesn't have privileged access. Cool. That was fun. That was really cool.
2: Good. Well, thank you, gentlemen.
0: Thank you.